The good news is that community podcasting is a concept that makes a whole lot of sense for so many communities and ironically is not being tried by as many as you'd expect. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Reismandel, and Eric Klein is not here this week. He'll be back next week. This week, I'm going to present one of my favorite interviews that we've done over the course of 107 episodes of Radio Survivor. So we're going to hear from Barry and Chaney Peters of Bainbridge Community Broadcasting. And that's out of Bainbridge Island in Washington State. It's just outside of Seattle. And Bainbridge Community Broadcasting is interesting because they are not yet a radio station. They are actually a podcasting operation. They do community podcasting. And we first met up with Barry and Chani back in 2015. And that's because they got a hold of us. They had started listening to our show early on. They were on episode number eight, but they'd already listened to what we were doing and were interested in talking with us and sharing their experiences in building a community broadcasting operation that's really community podcasting. They happen to be in Portland, Oregon, where we record the show. Eric and I both live here in Portland, and we invited them on over to the studios, which are also known as as my house, and uh, they shared the story of how they went from originally conceiving of having a broadcast, FM broadcast community station on Low Power FM, and then moving that as they saw how Low Power FM would and would not well suit the particular environs of Bainbridge Island, deciding that an online operation supplemented with a particular type of broadcast, which you'll hear about, uh, would better serve the community of Bainbridge Island. So we'll start off by hearing from Barry Peters, who will describe where the founding impulse came from for Bainbridge Community Broadcasting. Well, it turns out that about uh, six years ago, in the midst of the economic collapse that we all lived through, Uh, We used to have a public community television station. It was called BITV, Television for Bainbridge Island. And they folded in the midst of the economic recession. And I always felt bad that community media had just died on Bainbridge. And for years, nothing replaced it. And then there was the announcement. President Obama signed that new law that enabled people to apply for community radio, low-power FM, and the rest uh, is, a, is a story we'd like to tell you today. And what kind of service did you want to restore or did you want to even just bring that maybe wasn't there before? I had been on the, the city council in Bainbridge and I really saw the importance of building community. So many issues these days are local issues. Somebody said once that politics starts locally and frankly I think it starts and ends locally. And so we really wanted to have some medium that told the community story. We're lucky to have two long-standing newspapers but, and, and even a web newspaper. But radio to us was special because it would enable the voices of the community to come out. And so you applied for Low Power FM? We did. We did. And we first found a nonprofit in the community. It happened to be called Sustainable Bainbridge. It's existed since 2006. 
And they were very interested in building community through building community radio. And so they said, let us be the, the sponsor of this application to the FCC, which we sent off with thousands of other communities. And for many months, we assumed that that was going to be our solution until we started to ask some technical questions about line of sight FM frequencies, about hills and valleys and ravines on Bainbridge Island. Uh, we're a very forested, wooded island. And it started to occur to us that if we really wanted to reach people, we maybe needed another solution. So you were worried that only a small percentage of the residents of the island would be able to get the signal? Exactly. And in fact, uh, the biggest problem uh, was our community center, our town center uh, on Bainbridge Island, which is down hovered around a harbor at sea level. And our antenna, our tower, was going to be up the hill, far away, over the ridge, and not well-received in Winslow. So that, that was a very important factor, especially since one of our goals was also to do emergency radio on the island, where it's ever so important to be able to reach as many residents and people in their cars as possible. So what'd you do? So we withdrew our FM application, and we decided we had two missions and we could come up with two technologies. The emergency mission we went to our city and said, would you be willing to apply for an AM low-power license, which turns out to be available from multiple transmitters, on, even on one island. So instead of having one 8-watt FM transmitter, which would have been our allotment because the transmitter was on a hill and they ratcheted down 100 watts to 8 watts for us, uh, we would be able to have 10 watts at each of two or three antenna sources, and that's now in process with our city as an emergency radio source for a small island of 25,000 wow. people. Wow, I think that's a solution a lot of people probably aren't aware of. So it's like those Traveler's Advisory Stations, that right? That is exactly what it is. It's called TIS for short, Traveler's Information Services. And uh, a firm in Michigan has helped us immensely, and we are now testing the best AM frequency, and we hope to have it up and operating within a year. So will you be on the air then uh, when it's not an emergency on that AM what the city anticipates doing is relying on us as a nonprofit to create that loop, that tape loop that every day on good days, day in and out, welcomes people to Bainbridge Island. We have 2 million people a year coming by ferry to our island from Seattle, which is only 30 minutes away. So we, are a, we would loop a lot of information for travelers. But then on that day when there's an emergency, we would hand it over to the police and fire departments and let them provide the key information, along with our local ham radio club, which has about 140 licensed hams on Bainbridge Island. Wow, that's a really interesting solution, a great way to use uh, this other existing technology, which I, my understanding is only available to municipalities and other kind of public service agencies, correct? That is correct. But uh, we have a neighboring island, Vashon, who partnered with their parks district. Parks District got the license. They contracted with the nonprofit Voice of Vashon, and now you have a perfect uh, match of licensee and nonprofit. Wow! And so now, what are, is Brainbridge Community Broadcasting doing in addition to making this loop? Uh, so our second mission was to build community, and we felt that had to be done through community cultural programs, interview programs, covering what's happening on Bainbridge Island, who lives on Bainbridge Island, what are the issues and needs that you might hear someone speaking about in a cafe on Bainbridge Island. And that, we decided, was best met by having 
at least a podcasting project that was all volunteer and nonprofit and non-commercial. Why podcasting? Why not an internet stream? Uh, why not uh, finding maybe a way to get onto the cable system? It's, and there's a lot of different ways that people often get radio going without broadcasting in, on the airwaves. So why podcasting in particular? Well, maybe Jenny has an idea about that. Well, I'd say that there are probably a couple of important reasons. The first is that our generations now don't really sit around a radio and listen to radio anymore. I used to listen to Terry Gross in front of a, a radio, but now I only listen to her on podcast when I want to, when I have time. So we really felt that podcasting was the wave of the future, f- certainly for coming generations, where you can listen when you have time. And our podcast shows vary in time. We have a very short podcast, which is roughly between five and seven minutes, called What's Up Bainbridge, which tells people about upcoming local events. And because it's so short, people can listen to it pretty much anywhere, anytime. And then we have some longer podcasts, which are maybe 15 to 20 minutes about interesting people who live on Bainbridge or uh, community issues. Uh, For example, Barry interviewed our state senator. He's interviewed the city manager, the chief of police, that sort of thing. And then we have some longer shows that are really special, special events, like the author David Gooderson gave a talk about snow falling on cedars. It's been... Uh, I think, 20 years since he wrote it. And so he talked about the anniversary of that and what these 20 years has meant to him. So that's the first reason is accessibility. And the second is that podcasting is a much smaller investment of money. And so for anybody who's thinking about it out there, you spend a lot less money podcasting than purchasing and installing all the equipment for either streaming or on-air broadcasting. And it requires a much smaller and human uh, assessment um, investment of human resources because you create the podcasts as you have time, personnel, and energy. And that would not be the case if you were on-air or streaming. You would have to have regular people showing up every day (laughs) to be on-air. Um, so th- those are the main reasons. What's what's the cost differential? I mean, can you give me a sense? Is in turn you can just put it in fractions. You can put it in hard numbers. Well, we discovered that to put up a tower and an antenna and a transmitter and build a studio to tower link was probably going to be about thirty thousand dollars. And we based that on the excellent help that we had from the Prometheus Radio Project out of Philadelphia. In fact, our first step when we considered community radio was to go to them and say, would you be willing to be our representatives in this process? And they said yes. So we made a donation to them, and they were immensely helpful, not only with the LPFM strategy, but when we withdrew from that, they continued to supply information about streaming alternatives and podcasting alternatives. And that's where we got the $30,000. By contrast, to build a studio... I mean, you can start with zero with existing material in your garage and in your computer. <laughs> That's and so what on. we did. <laughs> and there you go. But we found that a brand new studio with, you know, Mac computer and, and excellent microphones. When we went to our Rotary Club and asked for a grant, we asked for $7,000. 
to build such a studio at our local public high school because part of our way of building community was to say this needs to be all volunteer across the generations. It needs to be adults and students. And so we built essentially two studios, one for adult volunteers in our town center in a little space of about 90 square feet uh, in a building where many of the nonprofits in town are located. And then the second studio was up at the high school where the students could go after school and create their own work. So, so instead of having to sort of entice the students to come to you, which would probably work and not work depending on their schedules, you're able to just bring it to them. That's right. That was our, our goal. And it, we, we learned an interesting thing. We live in an era where public schools are undergoing real stresses in the, for security. And we found out that it's more difficult for a well-attentioned adult to walk onto a high school campus these days than it was 20 years ago. And so we applied for a, a, a new grant for this year to bring the students together with the adults so we could collaborate in one space. And with the help of our local community foundation, we were able to afford an 800-square-foot studio, which has two different studio spaces, so we can be recording two podcasts at the same time, and also have good meeting space, because it's all about collaboration and the experience of getting together to build community. So who's helping out the students to create their podcasts? Do you have a teacher? Yes, we are all teachers, and in fact, uh, part of our process is signing up a volunteer to be in the role of a trusted volunteer. We use that term, and we have an agreement, which is called a trusted volunteer agreement. And part of that agreement asks an adult, would you be willing to be a trusted mentor of students? And to please the high school and their concerns about security, we then do just a state police security check whenever someone volunteers to be a mentor. And then they're in the position of helping the kids. But I've been amazed how proactive the kids are. We had one fellow, Charlie Hanasek, who came to us 18 months ago so excited about rebuilding radio in a community, and he formed a radio club at the high school pretty much on his own. He persuaded the principal to set aside a studio. He persuaded a teacher to be a mentor to the club, and he got the kids together. And I attended their first meeting with 15 boys and girls in the high school. It was really fun to see them taking off like that. Sounds like we should talk to Charlie, Paul. Indeed. And so what kind of programming are the kids making? The kids have one of the eight shows that we produce. Their show is called Bainbridge On Campus, meaning their high school campus. And it's their view from the campus of both events that are happening there. Their very first podcast was a portrait of one of the graduating seniors of the high school who has been a classical violinist for almost 10 years since she was a tiny kid. And they did a 20-minute podcast with her and allowed her to play her violin concerto fashion on, on the radio, on the podcast. And that was number one. And they've done other shows. The most recent one was interviewing kids who've done a community service project in one of our older residential neighborhoods where they found a building that had been deserted. It used to be uh, one of the historic buildings in town. And they've gone and restored it. So that was a subject of a more recent uh, student podcast. So my question is, you know, so how many people are in Bainbridge Island? What's the population? 24, well, 24,000. 24,000. Yeah, so there are about 9,000 9, homes on Bainbridge. Okay. And so the big question you always have with a project like this, if you build it, will they come? So do you have a sense that 
maybe now that the uh, that that the big push and and the big splash of it just starting up is over, that they're coming. You're nodding at me, yes, Jenny. Well, in one year, we have pub we have published about uh, two hundred podcasts that have been downloaded well over sixteen thousand times. We have partnered with over seventy nonprofit organizations, government entities like the city government and uh, businesses. People are pulling up our podcasts on the uh, on their computers uh, at our website, and also they're downloading it from the free app that we offer on uh, various mobile devices. And now we've gotten to the point where organizations are actually coming to us and saying, hey, we have an event coming up in three weeks. Could you please do a podcast about it? So... Our reputation and our credibility seems to be spreading, and people are coming to us, some of our volunteers, saying, hey, I've got a great idea. I'd I'd love to do a podcast about this author who's going to be doing a reading at our local independent bookstore. So it's not just the the raw stats, because it sounds like it's about 800 downloads on average per per podcast, per episode. Mm-hmm. About eighty. About eighty. Sorry, my math is bad. Um, but and, and most people will say, "My God, that's terribly small." And it is. It's about half of what the median number of downloads per podcast is on the commercial service we use, which has about a hundred thousand uh, podcasters. Uh, so it's small, but it's growing, and it's growing gradually. It's not a. It's not a curve that's shooting up like a rocket, but it's a. It's a word of mouth process where people are discovering community radio over time. There may be someone listening right now thinking to themselves, gosh, I, either I, I didn't get a low-power FM or maybe I you know, wished I'd gotten a low-power FM. Maybe they have a low-power FM, but they'd like to get into community broadcasting, and this model starts to make sense. Their wheels are spinning right now. What's your, what's your number one top piece of advice? Well, actually, I'm here, Paul, in response to your offer to let us see what the feedback would be from the community out there. I really would love to know, does this model make sense to your listeners? Does this model add up? Because it's very odd. We, we put our podcasts on a platform which has 100,000 podcasters, and I bet there may not be more than two of them like us, if that. So I want to know what's wrong with this concept. Isn't this a great way to do community radio? Please, could your listeners let us know what they're hearing, what they're thinking, and, and does, does this sound like a good solution for many communities? And that was Barry Peters along with Chani Peters of Bainbridge Community Broadcasting from Bainbridge Island in Washington State. And this is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities my name is Paul Reesmanel. I'm one of your hosts and producers. Eric Klein will be back next week with our next episode. You can learn more about anything we talk about on the show at our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 107. We always have show notes so you can go back and learn more, explore things more deeply. We also have lots of other news about community radio, community podcasting, internet radio, all sorts of community media at our website, radiosurvivor.com. And if you have any comments about the show, please send them to us, editors at radiosurvivor.com. 
And we really would like to know what you think about this idea of community podcasting. This is something which, you know, we've talked about quite a bit on this show because we really want to encourage people to think broadly about community media, about all these different ways in which you can create media that serves communities. And many times this happens in all sorts of different ways, sometimes ways that we, we almost take for granted as different publications go live on places like Facebook or they use Twitter. And in our local communities, we know about who's doing this around us, but often, you know, it's not something we know about in other communities. We don't always realize there are these paradigms or these examples that we can follow. And, and podcasting, because it's sort of grown sort of apart in some ways from social media, sort of apart even from broadcasting in its own way, I think we've we've heard less about and, and there's been less publicity around local podcasting efforts. It seems like maybe it's something that's a little harder to know about. And, and at the same time, though, I know that many public radio stations and now many community radio stations are experimenting with podcasting or going beyond experimenting, doing really good local podcasts. But because in a lot of ways, iTunes is the place where people turn to learn about podcasts. If you have an iPhone or iOS device, there's the the podcast app right in front of you, which gives you these charts, that's where people learn about podcasts. And these charts are not local. They are national, to some extent international. And it tends towards then favoring learning about shows which have a large national or international audience. And there might be a podcast in your local community, in your local area, which actually might match your interest, inform you about things that you might want to know about that may be growing in popularity, but it would be more difficult for that to sort of bubble up in a national chart. And so it seems like that that's one of the sort of structural issues that is maybe provides some friction in the system that keeps community podcasting from taking off, even as community radio right now has been taking off for years because of low power FM. But the radio dial is its own discovery mechanism, right? You turn on your, your radio, whether you are in your car, or maybe at home, you spin the dial and you find a station. You don't need an app on your phone for you to find out about a local station. In many ways, even if you don't listen to a lot of broadcast radio. Local stations often invest in television commercials, billboards, advertisements, and papers or alternative weeklies. There's all these ways that you might find out about it. And so I'd love to know what you think about this idea of community bro of podcasting. See, it rolls off the tongue so easily to say community broadcasting. And I mean to say community podcasting. What do you think? We really do want to hear from you. Are there podcasts in your local community that you turn to. And maybe they're not community podcasting in the sense of like it's a full-on station-like operation where there are studios that people can come and produce their shows. Maybe it's just a podcast produced by one, two, or a small collective of people specifically for a given city or even a given neighborhood, a town, county, whatever. Is there one you listen to? Are you producing one? We really do want to know. And we'd love to share that information back with our friends at Bainbridge Community Broadcasting. Drop us a line. Editors at Radio Survivor. 
com. Now, I was really lucky in November of last year, 2016, I was in Seattle and I had kind of an afternoon free and I decided to actually take a jaunt over to Bainbridge Island and looked up Barry Peters and had a chance to meet up with him in the studios of Bainbridge Community Broadcasting. And that was a good nearly year and a half after I first met Barry and Channy. So it's wonderful to get this update, to kind of have this longitudinal follow-up on how Bainbridge Community Broadcasting was proceeding, how it was growing after its initial launch. Well, I'm lucky enough to be sitting here in the studios of Bainbridge Community Broadcasting here in Bainbridge Island, Washington, with Barry Peters. Paul, welcome. It's such a pleasure to see you here at the studio. We, last time we saw you was in Portland. was in Portland about a year and a half ago where we got uh, – where you and, and your wife, Chani, were able to come by the Radio Survivor Studios, which doubles as my house. Yes. And <laughs> talk a bit about uh, what you're doing here in Bainbridge Island. And I had an opportunity to be by. And lucky enough, when I called, you answered the phone <laughs> just off the plane from Iceland. Of all places. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Where the politics are more sensible than they are in the United States. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, and said, come on by. So we're here in the studios. And I was hoping you, you could give us a little bit of an update of how things are going. And I know, I mean, let, let's just start. You have big news about where uh, Bainbridge Community Broadcasting is going in 2017, physically. Yes, it's, it's so exciting. Uh, for the first three years of our existence, we've been in the nest of a nonprofit named Sustainable Bainbridge, which has been a wonderful incubator for community podcasting. And they're real advocates for uh, local community, uh, whether of an environmental kind or uh, other issues. But in the new year, we'll be transferring over to a new nonprofit, which is called the Bainbridge Artisan Resource Network, called BARN. And BARN is essentially going to be a 25,000-square-foot arts center where volunteers can join, become members, and engage in any of a dozen different kinds of creative arts activities, from woodworking to metalworking to printmaking to bookmaking to writer's group. And with our presence there, it'll give them a chance to have a media arts group. And we will continue podcasting as BCB, but we will offer courses and uh, events around the theme of how do you do audio, how do you do video, how do you do social media, and how do you put it all together. And to, to us, the ideal solution is one that involves volunteers that we will meet there at Barn coming in the front door and saying, I'm here to do creative work with other people in the community. What kinds of things can I do? And we'll want to say, come over and learn how to podcast. And so it's going to be a great place to be to solve the number one problem of any nonprofit, which is how do you attract and retain volunteers. And uh, to remind folks, your volunteers span a wide age range. And you, in particular, you work with the local high school and local high school students. We've been partnering with the local public high school since the beginning. And in fact, we applied for a Rotary Club grant to help us buy equipment for what was then the high school's own studio. And we realized that much more effective was to have the collaboration that results when teenage volunteers are working in the same space as adult volunteers. And that's the way it is today. We, we decided that rather than maintain two separate studios 
and overcome the problem of how do adults get security access to go onto the high school campus, why not have this place where you're sitting, which is a five-minute walk from the high school, so the kids can come over here after school, they can stay in the evening to work on their audio or video projects, and we can collaborate together as adult and student volunteers. But how many students do you have these days uh, working with uh, Bainbridge Community Broadcasting? The, the most active group is a group of about 10 members of, interestingly enough, now a video club hmm. that's producing a weekly video news program for the high school. Uh, originally, the group of students formed a radio club, per se, and that proceeded to produce podcasts, about three dozen of them. Uh, but the emerging interest was in putting audio together with video, and that's where they are today, about 10 of them producing uh, active programming. And uh, just outside of this studio, people can't see it. I noticed you have a green screen and lights and you and you have tripods. So uh, you're expanding it into video podcasting as well, correct? Very much so. We think that the community podcasting idea is what holds us together. And there are certain subjects that just are better told as video stories, especially as we move next year into an art center. You can imagine the kinds of videos that are on the subjects of how do you make this or how do you do that in either a woodworking studio or a jewelry studio or a printmaking studio. All of those are stories that can be told so well in a 10-minute video and that can then be part of our community podcasting fabric that goes up on our website, it gets described on our Facebook page, and also goes up on YouTube. And I noticed uh, it seems like you've passed a milestone recently when I was looking at your website just earlier today. Yeah, yeah, uh, several. But the one that I have in mind is uh, we've now done over 100 and, excuse me, over 450 podcasts that are all community podcasts about the people and organizations and events of this remarkable community. Uh, there are only 25,000 people living here, but we've done podcast shows with about 150 organizations, hmm. businesses, governmental units on Bainbridge Island. And those are stories that really help to knit the community together. And the heart of making that work is forming various partnering relationships. And we've developed those with the likes of our local public library. We already talked about our local public high school. We have a, a new art museum that's been up about two and a half years, mm -hmm. and they're very enthusiastic about doing podcasting with us and have done a, over a dozen with the artists that are exhibiting there. And another great partner is our local independent bookstore. We have mm -hmm. a very active uh, Eagle Harbor Books uh, store in Winslow in Bainbridge Island, and they bring authors uh, to come and speak all the time. So it's been our practice – to form those partnerships by helping to give free publicity to the institutions of the community rather than going and trying to cover an event at the bookstore, which might detract from attendance. Mm -hmm. We give advance publicity to that upcoming event by interviewing the author, whether in this studio mm. or by Skype, so as to help to publicize the events of the community. Uh, our most recent podcast, the one I'm working on today, is publicizing Open Mic Science, which is a local club that monthly has a local scientist speak on their scientific topic of interest. And we're featuring this month 
a, a scientist who just came back from the climate talks in Morocco, hmm. which occurred in the week following the U.S. elections. And oh you can imagine the shock <laughs> and dramatic uh, crisis of conscience that was happening in Morocco as scores of nations were contemplating what's going to happen next with climate change. Is is that uh, podcast published? Is it live yet? It goes live today. It goes live today. So today, I think, is November 21st. I think. Yes. Yes. That's, so, that's what you know, my... uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll be sure, as we always say, we'll be sure to put a link to that in our show notes uh, for this episode, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, so that uh, folks can find that. Because yeah. I think there'll be a lot of folks in the audience who will want to definitely want to hear that interview. But we'll put a link to your webpage so people can find all your great podcasts there. Well, you know, telling the community story, whether it's audio or video, is a great opportunity. And I was saying to you earlier, Probably our most popular community video podcast was one that we recorded last December on a cold winter night when the local community was so horrified at what they were hearing about the idea of denying refugees access to this country that a vigil was called on short notice at our local Japanese American memorial, Mm -hmm. which commemorates the fact that this island was the first site of Japanese American internment during World War II. And that night, 100 people gathered with candles. We were there uh, recording the audio of that evening. And that 45-minute uh, that recording became one of our most widely listened podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's so indicative of telling stories that the community cares about. Yeah, and that's probably a history that uh, many people outside this area aren't aware of. Uh, that, right, that it that, happened here. That it happened here. And that yeah. people remember. I mean, there's still an active Japanese-American community here, and people remember that those residents and citizens of the United States were taken in a military action, uh, which the Supreme Court later uh, regretted. Um, but uh, that's the community story and one of many community stories. And you were showing me uh, uh, a plaque on the wall, some photos from uh, a uh, podcast you had done uh, about letters to the editor uh, of the local paper over the over a span of like something like – it sounded like 70 years or so. Tell me a little bit about that because it does kind of link up with uh, with this memorial that was had or this vigil that was had about a year ago. Yes. In fact, that was a local theater group called Island Theater, and about eight of their members came into the studio. We set them up in the front room where they stood in a circle around two stand-up microphones, and they took turns reading from letters actually written to the editor of our local newspaper from the years 1926 to 1996, and most especially during the World War II years when people were horrified about their neighbors being conscripted and interned and taken away to camps, many as far away as California, for example, uh, and leaving their homes and belongings behind. And uh, so they read those letters, and that became as well one of our more uh, widely listened community podcasts. So it tells another community story from a different point of view, Almost as a radio drama. Mm-hmm. It's a story of conscience. Of 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 conscience. I think. Yes. You know, and 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 it's good to hear that you know that seventy years ago, 
right? Mm -hmm. There was that conscience then, you know, that this was not necessarily a nation united behind every single aspect of of the war effort at the time, you know, and 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 of course the history of community radio in the United States is is one of uh, of of conscientious objectors who Mm -hmm. really started community radio in in the U.S. and in. Community radio and community podcasting is is a history, I think, of of conscience. Well, and we're very fortunate that we have such a, an active, concerned community. It makes a perfect place to do podcasts. Tomorrow, I'll be meeting in this studio with a young woman, twenty three years old, who just came back from Greece and Turkey, where she volunteered to care for refugees oh, over wow. there from Syria, and she's going to be telling the story of her volunteer service over there. Uh, these are the kinds of stories that make podcasting here on Bainbridge Island something that is, is so compelling and so so well-knit into the community fabric. So I just have one last question here. You know, we you, we talked to you early on in, in, in the uh, history of the uh, Radio Survivor podcast, and it was sort of early on as well for, yeah. for this project. And is, is there anything um, you want to share that, that kind of maybe you've learned or any hints or tips uh, that have come through in the last 18 months that you would give for any community group, whether it's maybe a community radio station looking to do more podcasting or maybe another nonprofit looking to think, aha, we, we don't have the resources to, to commit to like a 24-7 broadcast, but this podcasting idea seems like something that would work. Is there anything that's kind of come out in the last 18 months in addition to sort of the initial idea, any lessons you've learned? The good news is that community podcasting is a concept that makes a whole lot of sense for so many communities and ironically is not being tried by as many as you'd expect. Uh, Some of our best uh, neighboring examples are local FM radio stations that have podcasting on the side like the folks in Port Townsend, uh, Mm -hmm. Washington – who have a very successful full-power full FM station and do podcasting that's very successful and describes the community. The good news is podcasting is affordable enough, the capital equipment is available enough, and volunteers can learn in a relatively short period of time how to do podcasts that really work. And, and those voices are genuine, they're local, and they tell local stories. So this is an idea whose time has come, and I hope that any listeners to this will contact us or and or look at our website at bestofbcb.org uh, for an example of what a community can do with podcasting. And do you think it's been a help to have a space with some mics set up and the computer ready to go uh, so that you know, folks can can really just sit down and get started just in a few minutes. I mean, obviously, after they've had like what an hour of training at, at most. Uh, yes, uh, it doesn't have to be an elaborate space. We're mm-hmm. in eight hundred square feet here, but we don't need that much. We'll actually be moving to two hundred and seventy five square feet. Mm-hmm. And the the main advantage is if it's there, you will use it. And it also, we've been complimented on the professional quality of the sound we put out and the professional job we do giving a brief podcast set of notes to each podcast so that people can read their way into something that they later listen to. Uh, all of that can be done very effectively with a, either with local grants or a little bit of uh, local underwriting of the kind that we receive from our local grocery store and our local realtors. 
so this is something that could be done in many other communities. I see you've got instructions all around. They're very simple. They're clearly written. It's step by step. I watched you get set up here in the studio and you had a template already in, in the software you use to record. So it's already mapped out to these mics. And I mean, that's a lot of what happens in community radio as well. You make the studio, you know, as standardized, as simple to use. So training doesn't take very long. And in this case, right, you no longer have to worry about the FCC. You don't have to worry about transmitters and watching their settings. It's just get the recording and go. And that's that's really wonderful. Exactly. Our, our most valuable resource is our volunteers. And we can train a volunteer in an hour how to how to set up and run this studio well enough that they can make a podcast recording uh, easily. And that's a key to success. And the other key to success in the area of volunteers is making it possible for people to do the other technical stuff, whether it's audio editing or social media publishing of the podcast from their home. And we do that by uh, using our Google Drive, uh, part of a Google for Nonprofits uh, facility that's free to us. And by putting it up on the cloud, then our volunteers can be at home and do their work on a familiar computer with familiar software. Yeah, they can use free software like Audacity, right? Yeah. And, and whatever which can happens take all to, of these files and turn it into yeah. something that's a podcast. That's right. And, and it's a little more elaborate to train a volunteer how to do audio editing than how to do a, a podcast recording. But still, it, it's a great community activity. For <laughs> Tell volunteers. them to get it right on the first take. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's wonderful, Barry. It's so great uh, to meet you again here and uh, this time up here in beautiful Bainbridge, Bainbridge Island. Island. It's yes. uh, wonderful to be here. And Paul, keep up the good work with your show. Thank you. Uh, radio Survivor is holding out uh, the light for uh, people to keep doing good radio and community radio and community podcasting. Thanks for subscribing to the idea of community podcasting. It's a, it's a great concept. Thanks for innovating. It. <laughs> Once again, that was Barry Peters from Bainbridge Community Broadcasting on Bainbridge Island, Washington State. This is Radio Survivor. I am Paul Reismandel, and this is the sound of strong communities. If you have any comments about the show, we really do want to hear from you. Send us an email, editors at radiosurvivor.com. Um, we'd also love to put your voice on air. Do you have something to share? Should we be talking with you on the show about a great project that you're involved with, that you know about? Do you have some wonderful information, opinions, or ideas to bestow on us about community media, please do let us know. Of course, you could just record a commentary right on your phone. Not enough people have taken us up on this offer. Just use the voice memo app, whatever it is, and email it us off to us or drop us that line, editors at radiosurvivor.com. Send us that email and we'll uh, find a time to connect. It doesn't matter where you are in the United States, in North America, in the Americas, anywhere in the world. We do want to hear from you. We really like to turn this into a two-way communication medium if we can, even if podcasting is a bit like broadcasting as it is. And of course, uh, you want to learn anything more about what we've talked about on today's show. 
Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Just look for episode number 107. I do want to remind you that this is a listener and reader supported enterprise. So anything you can do to help is appreciated. To learn more, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. So as you may have guessed at this point, I've been thinking quite a bit about this idea of community podcasting, and that's because I love community media in all of its forms, from public access television to community art spaces, local video collectives, arts collectives of all sorts, and of course, community radio. And when people find ways to make it easier for people to be heard through different sorts of electronic media, especially to a broader audience. I'm always interested in learning more. And one of the things that, that only really just occurred to me now in re-listening to these interviews is that what Barry and, and Shani Peters and Bainbridge Community Broadcasting have created is really a podcast network. And, you know, it's a sort of shift in, in thinking about it, in framing, that maybe seems very obvious on the one hand, but I'm also interested in the fact that it took me this long to kind of think about it for this idea to occur to me. Since I've been working in podcasting myself since 2014, I work for Midroll Media, which owns the podcast network Earwolf, which is one of the earlier podcast networks, one of the earlier successful podcast networks built on comedy podcasting, but now so much more. Uh, Midroll Media also owns Stitcher, the app and network, which has shows like the Katie Couric podcast, uh, the Sporkful and other podcasts. But one of the interesting aspects of Earwolf in particular in its early days, when it got started, you know, around 2011 or 2012, is that it provided the basic resources for comedians, the alternative comedy comedians, as they might have been called, working in L.A. at that time. It provided this basic resource for them to come in and create their podcasts. Right? Shows like uh, How Did This Get Made? Shows like Comedy Bang Bang provided a studio, an engineer, to record it, the hosting, the sort of centralized website, the place where uh, people could go and easily find these shows, and then Earwolf would go on uh, to grow into mid-roll media, so also provided the, the ad network, the funding and uh, for both the uh, – to create the shows and, of course, the funding for the talent and the people making the podcast to be able to make some money or make a living at it. But that idea of the network – of creating the space in addition to sort of the online presence is exactly what Bainbridge Community Broadcasting did. And that's, and that's really what community radio stations do, if you really think about it, in that they're known often as much for their physical instantiation, their existence as a studio, as a transmitter. And in, in, in a certain way, 
Hertzian space as a place on the dial that provides a community center-like function and a place, of course, where people can make radio, can make audio, can make media. The same goes for public access television or all sorts of other types of public arts spaces. And that seems to me to be very important because what a network does is it lowers that barrier to entry even more so, especially for people who may not otherwise have the means to create electronic media of any kind. Or if they do sort of have the means, because, you know, a smartphone in many ways can be a podcasting machine, they may not easily have access to the ability and means to distribute it. And because distribution is not just a matter of getting it up on the web, getting it up on the internet, but there's a network aspect to that as well. One of the functions of a podcast network or a station or a public access TV station is that sort of interpublicity, right? It's the fact that one show tells you about another show. Or that when you're tuned into a station, shows transition from one to another. There's a continuity and there's a real community in the organization itself that also exists within a larger community. And that's something which networks provide is very, very important. And maybe a lot of folks who don't think about the podcasting business or don't think about podcasting very much can, can easily overlook. But, you know, if you've listened especially to so the most popular podcasts out there, if you're listening to a podcast from NPR, from WNYC, or from This American Life, or one from Earwolf, for that matter, or one from Panoply, is Slate, you will hear them promote their other shows. It's one of the best ways, in fact, to find audiences for shows, especially for new shows. And something like a Bainbridge Community Broadcasting provide that extra little bit of resource for every single new podcaster who joins in for every new podcast that joins in, you know, and in economics, this is known as a network effect, but it's real. It's real and it's important, you know, but thinking about this then again, about podcasting, having sort of this physical space, the ability to have this physical space as a studio. I don't want to say that that's an absolute necessity, right? By no means do I want to discourage anyone who wants to create a great podcast about things going on in their community that you have to have a studio space that's accessible, that you can't do it in, in a spare room, in a basement, or whatever space you can find that's quiet enough to podcast from. Of course you should. But if people can join together and create something that maybe broadens that access, I do think it enhances the service and probably enhances the durability of what it is you're doing. Makes it more likely that you've got a project that will have legs. And this is something which I've advised to folks who, who've, who've thought about starting community radio stations, especially just prior to 2013 uh, in the fall when Low Power FM uh, the window opened and people could apply to get a low-power FM community radio license. I talked with some groups who were actively thinking, should we go for low-power FM? Should we just start a, uh, an internet radio station? And my answer was both. Start an internet radio station, but go for the low-power FM if you can because it provides this sense of permanence. 
this sense that you're making an investment in the community and that's going to stick around. You've got this license from the federal government. It's not a trivial thing. It's hard to get. Very few people have one. And it sort of shows it that you're making an investment. But even if you can't have that transmitter for any number of reasons, whether it's because uh, right now you can't get a new uh, license or for whatever reason you applied in 2013 and couldn't get one, or you're like Bainbridge Community Broadcasting and you determined that a low-power FM license wouldn't allow you to serve your community the way you wanted to, being able to sort of set down roots in a real material and manifest sort of way also demonstrates the seriousness of your project. And I think that is important because it does mean that folks in your community may take your project more seriously, especially kind of early on. Certainly, I think with any sort of media project, if you keep at it and you keep plugging away, and you and you and if it's podcasting, you can get through episodes twenty-five to fifty to a hundred to two hundred, or some other sort of project. If it's print, you can get through issue after issue after issue after issue. People will see that as serious, and will and will will want to be more open to investing their time and energy in in your project. But I think if you can find a way to kind of team up and have that that studio space. That makes it easier for people to come on board. It might accelerate that process. And look, depending on where you are, that physical space might be expensive. You know, real estate is not cheap. Rent is not cheap in so many cities right now across the U.S. and across the world. But that's the place where, because podcasting, as as Cheney Peters pointed out in in the first uh, part of the interview. Uh, because it's relatively inexpensive to get started, that's a place where partnerships can develop. So maybe it doesn't need to be a brand new podcasting operation, community podcasting operation, but you might be able to partner with a group that has a little bit of space to spare. Even if that space can't be used full time, there might be a room that can be easily uh, soundproofed or you can add some a little bit of at least uh, baffling to cut down echoes and stuff. You can add a couple of microphones, a mixer and a computer and boom, you have a podcast studio. And maybe you share time. Maybe sometimes the room is used for meetings. Sometimes it's is used for video shoots. Sometimes it's used for all sorts of other activities, but at least some of the time, perhaps it could be a podcast studio. And join together. And maybe it doesn't even have to be one group. It could be multiple groups across your town or city banding together to contribute resources to creating a podcast network, a local community podcast network. I think there's a lot of ideas for how this could happen. And plus, if you happen to have a community radio station or college radio station in your community, maybe this is an opportunity for collaboration. So much of the time, stations aren't podcasting not because they don't think it's important or they don't think it might be really serious and yield great results. It may simply be a matter of resource, and often that resource is volunteer time or staff time. It may simply be human resource that there isn't quite enough to go around to also create podcasts on top of 
24-7 radio broadcasts or 24-7 public access TV broadcasts or any number of other different sorts of media. And that may also be an opportunity to bring groups together, to bring stakeholders together in a community and, and maybe use a little bit of excess resource because many stations have a production studio that may not be used all the time. Uh, a public access TV station may have a studio that has microphones, even if it's made for video and television that isn't used all the time. Uh, you know, there's all these places you can look and, and it's wonderful to create something new. Often it's wonderful to bring that energy, but sometimes. Community media is, is not necessarily about creating something new, but synthesizing something new from what already exists. Looking around and seeing what are the resources in your community and how might it be magnified by collaboration and collaboration around a particular media idea. And you see this, you see this in podcasting, whether it's uh, newspapers like the New York Times getting into podcasting in collaboration with public radio stations like WBUR in Boston. Uh, you see there is the Public Radio Exchange and their network called Radiotopia, which makes podcasts, also collaborating with many different groups around the country and around the world. There's great opportunities there. And I think it's worth thinking about to both not replace radio, to not replace public access television or or or, or uh, newspapers, but to actually create something with and on top of that, to create something stronger and to use all these networks and connect them together and to also put a regular audio component that does not require people tune in at a particular time. It takes advantage of all the things we know that – podcasting offers as a complement, as an adjunct, not an alternative to all these different sorts of media, but to consider it all in the big community media family. What do you think? I really do want to know. I throw this out here, but I want to hear your ideas too. Drop us a line. Editors at radiosurvivor.com is our email address. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Easy to find. We're Radio Survivor. Pop it into Google. You're definitely going to find us. And let us know what do you think or are there projects or other ideas we should know about. We really do want to hear from you. Also, we are a listener and reader-funded project. To find out how you can help support us, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Of course, show notes are at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And hey, if you're listening to us on a podcast app, Please subscribe so that you get it every day. And, and here's the thing I'd love to ask you to do. Tell a friend. Tell a friend about Radio Survivor. Someone you think might enjoy this. Someone who's, someone who's into radio podcasting and the like. Tell them about Radio Survivor. We'd really appreciate it. Let's grow the family of great community media. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm. 